Lauren. Mike. So we host a podcast for Wired called Gadget Lab. We do. We do. <laughs> yes, that is correct. <laughs> Tell the good people some more about it. Well, I think the good people should definitely tune in every week because they get to hear me roasting you. Hey, now. All right. No, really, what Gadget Lab is, is Mike and I tackling the biggest questions in the world of technology. I like to think of it as the best of Wired's journalism, but in audio form. We cover the big news of the week in tech land, but we also offer our expert analyses and opinions on all things consumer tech, whether that's mobile apps, hardware, startups, cryptocurrency. Mike, what's been a recent highlight episode for you? We did a deep dive on the group behind the massive Okta hack. We mm -hmm. also had a great conversation about Web3 and the metaverse. What stands out for you? Never metaverse you didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed our recent podcast about Peloton. Um, and recently, the legendary tech journalist Kara Swisher joined us to talk all about Elon Musk and the future of Twitter. So I guess we should tell people how they can listen to our pod. We release a new episode of Gadget Lab every week, and you can listen and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you pod. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Today on Around the Coin, I interviewed Karn Saroya. Karn is the CEO of Cover. The site is cover.com. Cover has raised over $70 million, and they provide a mobile-centric way to find insurance. Specifically, being tech-focused, they build a great experience for people today to get car insurance, but soon it'll be uh, homeowner's insurance, and in the future, many different insurance products. We talked about Karn's journey to building cover, what he was doing prior at Stylekick and Shopify. Uh, we talked about the morality of insurance, how we should think about regulation of insurance. And then we talked about the decentralization of insurance products and what Karn is building at cover to allow people to participate in the insurance market. It's really exciting stuff. It's the future of uh, not only insurance, but the benefits of smart contracts on blockchain is to allow people to participate in the benefits of insurance. And so we talked about what that means and what they're building at Cover and when we should expect to be able to invest in insurance products. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It was very fast. It was one of the fastest conversations I've had because it was so engaging and Karn had so much to share about insurance and the world of it all is complex and multifaceted and I learned a ton. So I hope you do as well. If you do, please do take a moment to share the podcast with a friend, to like it in iTunes, give us a rating there. It helps us tremendously. And send us podcast guest suggestions. If you have people that you want me to interview, please apply. Just go to aroundthecoin.com and put in a guest speaker suggestion. We would love to hear from you. So without further ado, I bring you Karn Saroya. All right, we're live. Karn, thanks for hopping on today. Of course, thanks for having me. Yeah, um, Let's, uh, I want to talk before we dive into cover and insurance and all, all that jazz. Uh, you were, you're from Toronto. You presumably moved to the U.S., at least semi-permanently. Um, you had a startup previous to cover. And then previous to that, you were in, uh, what'd you do? MIT in the finance department. What, give me your like pre-startup life. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was a management consultant. Uh, out of undergrad, uh, yeah, I did a, a grad degree in finance um, at MIT, and then uh, ended up being a consultant again for a little while. Um, you know, worked with some really really smart people, uh, but had the itch to venture off on my own and, and start a business. And so, you know, at around year two of my second stint of being a, a management consultant, and this was specifically in financial services, I quit 
um, you know, ended up sleeping on a friend's couch for six months, trying, uh, a, a wide variety of different things and ultimately landing on, um, you know, an e-commerce marketplace that tried to predict what people wanted to buy based on how they interacted with, uh, outfits and, um, and catalogs that designers would upload to our platform. And then that, that grew to about a million actives. Um, you know, Stylekick was featured in every country, you know, translated into 14 different languages, uh, and was a pretty cool experience, uh, not having built anything before to seeing something scale. Yeah. So was this something you saw manage in management consulting where you said, Hey, this is an opportunity or not at all. No, it was, it was kind of, um, you know, uh, you never really end up where you start. And so when we first started, I was pretty fascinated with using, um, you know, a connect sensor. So the thing you use to play dance dance revolution, it's like a web webcam and a depth sensor. And myself and one of my high school friends who's still my co-founder today at cover, um, built a body scanner that we tried to work with the gap and, uh, you know, a bunch of, uh, a bunch of retailers on to help transition folks who are buying in store, uh, to try to get them comfortable buying online back when, when that wasn't as comfortable a thing for folks to do. So we'd scan people, uh, build a profile, uh, and ultimately try to make it easier for them to shop that pivoted into a pure marketplace, uh, where we had lookbookers and designers upload outfits, um, and then make them shoppable and they would tag the, the attributes. And from there we would try to learn what people would like to wear. Yeah. Hmm. So what's the, what's your, in hindsight, what's your story about that business? Was it too early? Was it just, uh, I, I thought we grew up into mobile at a really good time, right? We, we, um, you know, this was pre shoppable Pinterest, pre shoppable Instagram. <clears throat> it was a, a unique point in time when Instagram was still scaling and you could, you know, pick up tens of thousands of new users a day, um, you know, using, uh, a, set of strategies as part of like a portfolio approach to growth that didn't require a huge amount of capital in the way that you do, you, you do need to fight it out today. Um, so I, I'm very thankful for the experience. I, I wish I had thought more deeply about what, uh, you know, stock could have become, uh, because we, we couldn't operate that business off of pure affiliate income at kind of the scale that we were getting to. Um, and you know, if you, if you look at who the winners from, from that era ended up being, it looked like, you know, Poshmark, um, you know, uh, folks like Glossier, folks who either went and started developing and building products of their own or facilitating commerce in, in a deeper way, uh, uh, mm-hmm. you know, than, than we were, we were doing at the time. Yeah. When you mentioned back then there was strategies that worked and today you have to fight it out. Is that, are you referring to like organic partnerships with influencers that today is just too high competitive? Yeah. So, so you know, we, we certainly leveraged influencers early. This is before influencer agencies were a thing. We quite literally built scrapers to help identify folks who were picking up traction, um, you know, had high levels of engagement um, that, you know, corresponded to the type of content and material that, was resonating on the, on the Stylekick platform. And so we could have been an influencer agency. We worked with thousands of these folks, um, and, uh, drove a pretty meaningful amount of traffic. The, the other, um, you know, things that have changed in the mobile context, uh, you know, ASO, so apps for optimization, um, you know, it was still in its infancy back then. And it was easy to, it was easier, uh, to rank, um, and, and be discoverable, um, in a way that is more difficult to do so now. Um, and because we were building really sexy products, um, they're getting, you know, quite a bit of attention, uh, you know, from, from this, this community, you know, Apple and Google were pretty happy to feature us, feature us pretty perpetually. Uh, and, mm. and so there was a point in time actually when we were in YC that we had both Stylekick and Cover, uh, featured on the front page of the US App Store simultaneously, which was kind of wild. Oh, I didn't. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So styles, so when style, so Shopify, presumably you're in the same location in Toronto. Yeah. And yeah. Shopify ended up acqui hiring company. Yeah. Uh, so, the, so our team joined them. Uh, you know, the, the genesis of that was effectively, 
um, you know, we got to know the product team there uh, and had some familiarity with Satish and Craig, who is a, the chief product officer. And what we wanted to do is kind of pipe in, um, you know, the via the shop up the Shopify products API. Basically, everything that was being made available um, via Shopify merchants within their own discrete, um, you know, instance of Shopify, we wanted to be able to make indexable and searchable via via Stylekick, which which is actually um, you know one of the reasons that we ended up joining Shopify was to build something like a um, you know a marketplace for Shopify merchants and that kind of. Uh, you know, after we left, it pivoted into a couple of things and ultimately manifested in into the shop app uh, in its current incarnation. Oh, is that right? That's awesome. I didn't realize that. I use the shop app, or at least it uses me. It sends me. Yeah, yeah it's got it's got the right <laughs> viral hooks post transaction, right, to get you. Uh, yeah, to yeah. The system, yeah. The the concept there is that you download this app and then it tells you uh, tracking using the publicly available or Shopify exclusively available tracking details. And then it post you notifications yeah so so really arced away from um you know a, a pure marketplace so i think that might still be part of the roadmap um unclear to me but when we were there we were primarily working on a marketplace and then we worked on a handful of other things um you know like facebook like facebook at a time was uh really trying to build out messenger and drive a commerce narrative it it, it turns out that messaging is a great platform for support and post-sale upsell. It's not a great platform for origination of business, right? So once you've bought something from a Shopify merchant, you know, the experience can be very, very personal and tailored, but the the actual act of selling the first thing is a little bit tougher. Yeah. Is that go back to the app store optimization? Like you're not going to just scroll through the app store and download apps the way you would on like somewhere else? Yeah, look, I, like, I mean, it, it's always a portfolio part. So we had some paid paid initiatives, and th- those were more economic than we had influencer initi- initiatives, we had app store optimization, um, we had, you know, the additional, in- like, organic discovery from being featured. And that was enough to get to pretty sizable. Um, and then everything else out of the app, you know, usually growth is product led, right? So you, you know, when you have people creating user-generated content and sharing it and trying to sell things, you inevitably have these network effects that kick in uh, and you're able to draw in more users. Yeah. Okay. So it didn't, it didn't work as people, it didn't turn out as a big company or big acquisition. And the, the storyline there or what you took from that experience was, was what? Uh, that we could build beautiful products, uh, and we could find millions of people to use them. And that, wait, that, wait, wait, that wait. yeah. So, so the, the primary lesson we got from there was going from not being able to build anything and having significant imposter syndrome about taking a step out of my comfort zone to yeah. now having, you know, having millions of people use your product at some point or another and understand the, like the, the nuance of, you know, how they flow, how they flow through their products, what, what the the right hooks are to be able to retain them to get them to refer. So it was a, it was kind of like a master class in building consumer products for us. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. How important is um, App Store rankings for cover? Um, minimally so, actually. Yeah. Right, like we it, it, we we still drive on the direct, and we've got a, a a like a hybrid approach to acquisition. We certainly have cover.com in our apps, but we build agency facing software too. So. If you've ever walked into a local, um, it's starting to be this, this case, but if you've ever walked into a local uh, insurance agent or called up a local insurance agent, there's a chance now that they're using cover software to be able to sell a cover policy or a related product. So, uh, you know, cover.com uh, makes up probably the minority of our traffic. We haven't really engaged in a, like a SEO for or heavy strategy there, though that probably will manifest over time. Our, Mobile apps, um, you know, again, get featured routinely. They're really, really simple to use. They offer functionality that most insurance companies don't offer. You get a phone number to a dedicated rep that you can text at any given point in time. All of your servicing, um, you know, happens uh, through the app. It's a very high touch, you know, um, uh, feel for your, your insurance dollars. Um, and, you know, from a design perspective, very congruent with the type of stuff that we built. Uh, in high end fashion, right? which is not something you would expect in insurance. Yeah, no, I wouldn't have guessed, but it makes sense. I mean, great consumer experience is great consumer experience. What, what's the what's the 
presumably you start without working through the agency distribution channel. What is the pitch? Like, okay, hey, uh, uh, Karen, I'm uh, selling insurance out of uh, Milwaukee. Like, what what are you offering me? Yeah. So, so look, I mean, it's always a combination of fast, cheap, good. We're just trying to do all three, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you can bind a policy through cover pretty trivially. Um, if we're not selling you a cover insurance policy, we own a national insurance agency. And so you don't really need to go anywhere else, right? We, we will effectively work with, um, you know, the progressives, travels of the world and in it without you having to call someone else or, download another app or fill out another application, we'll get you the policy. Um, and then what what really shines for us is actually post-sale support, right? Like if you take a look at our reviews, um, folks love us because uh, we were re- remove the cognitive overhead of having to perpetually shop. We're pretty proactive about letting you know when you know opportunities pop up for you to save money. Um, and we've been really, really good about you know, arcing the the consumer experience into something that's a little bit more like a, like a triple A esque, uh, you know, value proposition. So we have a pharmacy program for all of our, our users. Um, you know, we, we surface opportunities to save money in other ways. So if you bought an auto insurance policy, we could probably refi your vehicle and save you, you know, a significant amount of money. Um, if you've got an auto policy or something like that, we can move you into other lines of business kind of predicated on what your, your, the profile is of the customer. So if you're a homeowner, you probably want a home insurance policy and an umbrella policy, and it kind of becomes bespoke to the customer. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Okay, so if they're not using cover, a insurance agent would be using another piece of software that has a similar kind of... Awful. Yeah. So, so a lot of, I mean, if you're using an insurance agent and you know, they're, they're good at their craft, they've been doing this for decades. Um, uh, the tooling available to insurance agents is pretty atrocious, right? So, which is kind of why we started to build software for them. Um, but historically, you know, it would be over email, it would be phone calls during business hours, it'd be a phone call. And perhaps, you know, your agent is not at the office and another agent isn't authorized to work with you. There are a lot of like, um, you know, inherent frictions with the existing process that really are like pre-internet nearly. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and and so when you get a, you know, when you, when you get this fluid experience of being able to text somebody and it's your agent, um, you know, they've got an instance where they, uh, of, of cover in front of them that allows them to manage relationships across, you know, all of, all of their book. Uh, it's a, a different value proposition from a speed perspective and an ability to deliver value from a pricing perspective. Yeah. All right. I'm, w- I'm with you on that. Um, all right. So you, the other, the other thing, sorry, the other thing is like uh, the, the mobile format actually allows us to capture quite a bit more information to underwrite. So if you, if you think about what insurance is, it's a risk selection business, right? Like you need to be very, very good at underwriting at risks that are driving up losses uh, in excess of the the, the, the pool on, on a normalized basis. And so, you know, what we ask for are things like, um, Hey, you can authenticate and be a plaid in lieu of your credit. If you're new to the country, right. Um, you can give us pictures and videos of the property that you want to insure. And that gives us significant comfort that it, it, you haven't been in a crash and buy, um, basic UBI, um, gives us a sense of what kind of driver you'll be. You know, uh, like there's, there's quite a bit there that ends up flowing into a decision to find a high quality pool of customers that allows us to lower our rates for that high quality pool of customers. In the last 10 years, over $100 billion worth of crypto has been lost or stolen, specifically because of poor key management scams and hackers. Forget not your keys, not your crypto. Software and hardware wallets have both the same vulnerability that a single private key can be lost, hacked, or simply just misplaced. My new sponsor, the Zengo Crypto Wallet, is a total game changer, bringing wallet security to a whole new level. You have to check out Zengo, an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability, leveraging advanced cryptography called MPC, which has, just until now, only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions. So Zengo, most secure Web3 wallet, it's the best place to keep your crypto, NFTs, and assets secured. It's also fully recoverable using their biometric recovery system, and it's also just beautiful. Get started at Zengo.com and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's Zengo.com. 
code ATC for $20 back on your purchase of $200 or more. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hmm. Do you think of insurance conceptually? I mean, I find the, the concept fascinating because it's, uh, it's, it's using, like you said, what, what information is available about a person to predict their, uh, normalized impact on the pool. So you're pulling in from, from a business perspective, you want as much as possible. And presumably there's some indicators that long tail where if you knew, you know, five pieces of information, you could effectively uh, determine what this person's rate for me would be. And then, and then if you knew 30 more pieces of information, it would be marginally improved upon that. Is that, yeah, more or less the case when you think? Yeah. So, so within, within the confines of a regulatory regime that is, is intended to protect the consumer, right? So you can't consume all information. Um, and the regulator is going to look at the information that you consume through the lens of, Hey, um, is, this insurer ultimately, you know, making a fair decision, right? Uh, that is inherent, is inher- inherently discriminatory as a first step. The second step is if they have made the right decision, are the insurer, that is, um, are the rates that they're charging adequate for the risks that they're taking? Because if they are not adequate for the risks that they're taking, um, that kind of defeats the purpose, right? Like a, a, a pooled risk sharing. Uh, cause you'll, your, your premiums won't be sufficient to cover your claims and you're kind of out of business for everyone. Well, wouldn't that naturally just be analogous to saying, Hey, if you sell clothing, you know, you sell t-shirts and the value of your t-shirt is $7 and you're charging $150, then you shouldn't be allowed to do business. Wouldn't there just be market competition? Like you offer cover and it has extremely high rates. I come out with, you know, undercover and it, it I sell it for like, why wouldn't the standard market dynamics apply? For a significant part of the population, insurance is a very price elastic product, right? Like there, there are certainly insurance companies that differentiate in an old school way on customer service. And, and Chubb would be a very good example of that, right? Like very white glove service. Um, it, you know, there's a fire and earthquake. They've got teams out there. Um, the, the claims are paid almost immediately, but they end up charging double. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it, it comes down to, you know, what kind of segment of, of the population are you, um, you know, are you working with? And I think if, if you, if you do take the, the view that there are an, a fair number of insurance lines of business that are commoditized, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to be the price leader, uh, that wins and the price leader necessarily needs to be better at underwriting and risk segmentation than everyone else. Right. You think about it. The math is every risk has a price. You and I, in an efficient world, would have a price associated with the insurance that's efficient for us. The customers, on the other hand, are arbitrage seeking. You're looking for to, to minimize your price, typically speaking, as opposed to maximize on customer service. Um, and so there's kind of this natural tension that lends itself to many players trying to triangulate on what what the right you know point is along a regression that you should you should be at. And and and. Is your assumption there that the insurance companies eventually have access to the same data? I mean, in in this case, it seems like the mobile is a big part of the business model where using mobile, we can pull in things easier, faster than we could. On So, so I mean, Progressive is actually a pretty good example of this, right? They're the first ones, rightly or wrongly, to, uh, to have started using credit scores as as predictive elements of, of, of their underwriting. Um, and it took maybe, you know, a decade 
before other insurance companies could kind of calibrate around starting to ingest this type of type of information to remember most insurance companies are not technology companies at their core right like you you and i may think of these these entities banks and insurance companies as kind of glorified databases but that is not what insurance companies think of themselves mm-hmm. as right um in the investment the, the investment in technology um you know it tends to be uh, outsourced decision making to management consultants Right. Uh, or, or, uh, you know, insurance SaaS software companies that are accustomed to working with C suites that are not technologically savvy. They, they're very technically interested and very smart people, but they didn't grow up in this. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and so the, the lag time tends to be pretty significant. Yeah. 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 As we see in banking too. Right. It's like you go to chase.com and it's still pretty ugly. Like the experience, you know, regardless how big they are. And, like Novo banks and new web-based banks are just going to be better in so many different ways. So yeah, no, that's, that's a very valid point. Um, how do you think of the, this is one thing I think about in insurance is regulation reflects our, like you said, the concern for the cu- consumer and, uh, particularly what seems to get highlighted is, uh, demographics of people, uh, being excluded in some way from an insurance product, sometimes for their location, race. I don't know if age is particularly sensitive. Um, probably not as much. I mean, what, what are, what is that about? How do you draw the line of morality in insurance? How do you think about that? Yeah. I, I mean, the regulator sets the baseline and then ultimately it's a decision. It's a decision, um, you know, by the folks who are running the business, what they'll consider right at the end of the day. Um, and like every other business it's a broad spectrum of, of personalities and willingness to, you know, in, in engage in particular things. We, you know, we try to endeavor to look at things, um, it, it, alternative data sources in the absence of information, right? So if, you're a newcomer to the country and you don't have a credit score it doesn't inherently make you a poor risk, right? Either for a loan or for an insurance policy, there has to be some other proxy, um, you know, for you, uh, for us to ingest and arrive at a decision and whether that's a, you know, uh, a, a credit report from a, a foreign um, subsidiary of a, you know, a credit bureau that that's acceptable. If it is, um, you know, demonstrated, uh, you know, ability uh, and, and willingness to ma- manage your money. Like, you know, there, there are all sorts of proxies for these kinds of things that, um, that, mi- that improve market access for folks who don't necessarily have it. Mm. Got it. Okay. So in the case of say, say it was legal to collect everything about a person that you could possibly know, like hypothetically, it, where, where does that go wrong? Like, where do people actually get, um, taken advantage of if, if they voluntarily opt into that data, you know, the, yeah. It, so, so the, the question here is about inclusiveness, right? Like if you have full resolution, um, I mean, full resolution into everything you would need to price somebody, um, even there is never real, it's never really going to happen as like a, pr- as a practical matter, right? It's, it's not never really going to happen, but if it did happen, um, it would be inherently exclusionary. Right, like you, you would have a part of the population that drives outsized losses for for the, the pool, and I think you just have to determine, you know, whether as a society or as a company, um, you know, what you want to do there. Right, it's a trade, yeah. it's a trade off. Yeah, yeah, because on some level, I take a simple example. Right, like my my wife and I are roughly the same age. I'm 11. No, I'm I'm five months older than she is. Uh, when I go to get car insurance. Uh, it would be different because I'm male, she's female. I'm going to ha- I'm going to pay more. So they're saying men statistically are worse drivers, more likely to get into a crash than women, or maybe they drive more some, some factor there. Yeah. Uh, so, so, but, so, you know, that particular example, you know, there, there's, um, depending on the regulatory environment. So if you take a look at like Texas tends to be, um, you know, kind of evenly balanced between insurance friendly and consumer friendly. Um, places like California, extraordinarily consumer friendly. I don't even think that at this point in time, um, you can differentiate your rates based on you know, whether you're male, female, or, or non non-binary, 
right? Um, in in all that, at the end of the day, does is kind of s- spreads the results and the policy objective of a California Department of Insurance regulator is to improve overall access because if you're, you're spreading it, you're you're making it possible for a greater proportion of folks to end up being insured. Um, now, whether whether that actually manifests, um, you know, in, in the real world is is a question because you still have a huge proportion of folks who are underinsured or not insured at all. Um, but you know, it is a strategy that's been employed to be able to do this. Yeah, because it seems to me like you can you can shave at it on the margins, but as soon as you say, you know, imagine imagine men and women are drastically different. Imagine it's you know men are twice as likely to get into a car crash than women. If you were to average that out and say in California you can't judge an insurance company can't use gender or sex based on, uh, to calculate rates. Well, now what if what, what if women now which have to pay. more in their premiums. What if they opt out and just say, well, if I get into a car crash, it's statistically just worth it for me to just pay out of pocket and therefore I'm not going to get it. And then there's this like cascading effect that, you know, applies to insurance. I I think that that's very true at the aggregate level, right? Like if it, you know, you're, you're looking at pools of risk and you see that, you know, Hey, some characteristics are uh, really, really driving up losses. And in, in an isolated way, there's really no reason that, a person, never mind an auto policy, but it, somebody's doing a thing that's in, that is incurring some risk. In a an optimal sense, yeah, they just don't do it anymore. As, as you just pointed out, they should opt themselves out. But at the individual level, right, we don't think of things that way. Um, like we don't think of ourselves as inherently risky or riskier than other folks. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, the impact that it has on the individual is very different from what it has in the pool. Yeah. Yeah. But it would still happen to some to some to, degree, to right? some degree, yeah. So to some degree, I mean, like, look, like if you, um, you know, drove a taxi versus drove for Uber, right? Um, commercial auto insurance for taxi drivers is extremely high, right? Um, yeah. or, or historically has been extremely high. So like, you look at that and you're like, should I be a taxi driver or should I arb this and go be an yeah. Uber driver? Where I have a personal auto policy and Uber provides some sort of nominal cover in addition to that. And I don't have to worry about, you know, this $10,000 bill, um, you know, every year, yeah. uh, to, to, yeah, drive that's huge. Year. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. Cause it seems to me like the, the, the message to get out there for the benefit of all of us speaking almost selfishly is that it sounds nice to be consumer protective from a regulatory perspective. In California, I can see how the political narrative can easily be, hey, this is better for everyone. It's equal. And in fact, we're not going to allow insurance companies not only to to not use gender, we're also just not, not going to allow them to use age or where you lived because that can be used or even your eye color or anything about you, in fact. And so it has to be the same price for everybody. Like how, what do you think if that, this is on the other end of the spectrum, you know, full access to everybody, what would happen if hypothetically, of course, it were to go that far in, in terms of regulation? It just makes it harder to be profitable, right? Um, yeah. and, and ultimately it reduces the supply, um, you know, of insurance because it's still, a, you know, you can still move around. You still write business in other states and other countries. Um, and if you're finding, if you're finding that, you know, the total effort required to underwrite provision and service the insurance, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. Do you keep doing it? Right? Like you're not, you're not required to. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you get into healthcare, right? Then, then there's mandates and things, but what, it, what insurance policies now is cover? I know cover is just about in every state. Um, yeah. Do you want to so, talk about the structure of the company? Yeah, sure. So, so, I mean, we were, we, you know, we started off as a distribution business. So we were, when we launched out of Y Combinator, um, uh, you know, we didn't know anything about insurance and we didn't know a lot about building mobile apps and finding people to use them. Um, and so, uh, you know, we would have, uh, even during the first couple of weeks of YC, you know, we were featured as the best new app and tens of thousands of people coming in and, um, not knowing much about insurance, you know, we, we try to simplify the onboarding to be something akin to like, Hey, send us pictures and videos of the vehicles, homes, pets, jewelry, et cetera, that you want insured. And then the scrappy YC founders that we were on the other end, were uh, calling up 
uh, insurance agencies in like Idaho and Arkansas and, um, you know, uh, working with uh, insurance agents and insurance companies that start taking our customers. And, um, you know, that, that worked for a little while and didn't really scale very well. Uh, and, and more jarringly, you know, we found that the, the experience that they were delivering, like this discontinuity and being able to reach out to people in real time, like no software experience really supporting the experience at all. As soon as we handed, we handed off the customers, led us down the path of becoming an underwriting business so that we could kind of own more, um, you know, of the customer experience from, uh, you know, soup to nuts. And so today the, the current configuration of the business is, um, hey, like we have a direct business uh, and we have agency facing software. We have nearly 4,000 brick and mortar agencies that distribute for us. It'll probably be like 10,000 by the end of the year. Um, we build software that's elegant, easy to use both for agents and for consumers. Um, you know, they, they come in through the apps again, very consumer focused because we, we know that a customer needs to get insurance somewhere. We know that they don't want to hop around. Uh, and we know that there's a significant amount of cognitive overhead, um, and feeling, and feeling like you're missing out or not being able to get the value you deserve if you have to go from one place to another. Right. Um, and so we'll underwrite a customer for cover and not everybody's a, a fit for cover insurance. And this is primarily auto and we're moving into home soon. Uh, if it is not a fit, uh, uh, again, you know, we know our customers want the best possible value for, for their dollars. And so we'll, we'll work with them to be able to find a provider that does. And so, um, you know, we own and operate a national insurance agency in the background that enables us to do that. And then for anyone that we do not are, are not able, um, you know, to, to find a policy, uh, we also work with with insurance companies that don't work with agents, right? So the the state farms of the world, the Geico's of the world, will will, will offer up a, a, a you know fully pre filled referral to help you get a rate from them as well. So it we we generally side with the customer. We just want we know that folks are going to look for the best possible value for themselves. We just fulfill that function and then do it programmatically on the back end. Um, you know, as uh, as renewals come up or or life circumstances change. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then, so, so there's that, um, you know, in, in most recent memory, we've been a very capital light business, right? Where we technically are an MGA, so managing general agent. We do everything except for take significant balance sheet risk. Um, and that's actually changed now too. So we, um, you know, we're probably the only insure tech, uh, uh, and you've probably seen the route in the public markets, like, that does a really good job of underwriting, right? Like a, there, there's typically speaking like a, a lot of hand waving, um, at, and, and, you know, the, the best way to judge an insurance company is ultimately on its financial results, right? It's loss ratio, uh, et cetera. Uh, if you're, if, if you're running and you've got a positive contribution, every policy you're going concern and, and everyone should be happy because you're going to be around to pay claims. Um, for the most part, that hasn't been true, you know, of, of insure tax. They've, for the most part, just underpriced the risks to accelerate gross and premium growth. Um, and then a, a variety of mechanisms kind of have just removed their ability to stop losing money, right? Which is why they've, they've kind of been hammered. Um, but yeah, look, like we, uh, we've, we were a store, sorry, I kind of segued away. We were historically, no, no, yeah, we were historically a, 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 a capital light business in that, you know, we would originate the business, we'd write a price and underwrite the business, we service the business. And we work with reinsurers, which is insurance for insurance, um, to, to move ourselves to like a defined economics business. We, we know what our seating commission is. If losses come in too high or losses come in below, um, you know, that, that kind of volatility is buffeted by using reinsurance partners who are generally very sophisticated actors within this space. Um, we've been delivering an underwriting profit since our inception. Um, and so we spun up a reinsurer of our own. Um, on, on, on Cayman to be able to take a, uh, a meaningful part of the risk that we originate. Uh, in, you know, we're, we're going to talk about this, but uh, on top of that commercial reinsurer, we're actually building a protocol that enables third parties, the so third party investors, specifically crypto asset holders who can supply stable coins to supply stable coins and earn insurance premiums that are generated by cover, but also other insurance companies. Um, and so if you, you think about kind of when you, when you operate a reinsurer and you do it in a, in a DeFi context, it actually looks a lot like, uh, a lot like a decentralized Woods of London. So I'm happy to get as deep as you want into that, but 
Um, yeah, the, the crux of it is kind of, hey, we now we now take risk, but we also allow others to take risks alongside of us. Gotcha. And um, let me define the the words you use there first. So uh, you mentioned reinsurer and uh, Cayman. What it, what's what is that? Yeah. So so I mean, um, there are, you can domicile a reinsurer uh, just about anywhere, right? Where the, where insurance is sold. Uh, we we looked at Bermuda and came in and we're looking at, at um, regulatory environments where, generally speaking, folks are m- more comfortable um, uh, innovating, kind of at, kind of at the edges of, of uh, what could be, uh, and we found both of those those regulators to be pretty accommodating. And so structurally, you would set up an office. Do you have to set up an office down there? Ah, uh, so so we have um, we've got program managers that are on the island. Um, uh, oh, really? But, well, we don't, we don't have any FTE, so we work with folks on that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, presumably it's relatively easy to just have a shell or a, you know, like a post office box there. And then you're, I mean, you don't need a physical person there, do you, to open up a company? Uh, n- not, not during COVID. Uh, I, I think at some point or another, I'm required to go to Cayman to do a, an annual meeting. That's uh, not that bad. Which, which I don't mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, that goes into the the equation is better than uh Antarctica. So you set up a um the business down there for the purposes of pre- presumably obviously the US regulation and regulation specifically around crypto is it more around crypto or insurance that you um, it, it's about? actually both. Uh it, and so you know we're the the commer- the commercial reinsurer is still a US tax paying entity so above board there. What what we're trying to construct are the rails that allow crypto assets to start to earn yield on real world risks, right? So there there are examples of, uh, you know, purely crypto native like Nexus Mutual and like you know Ether Risk and a couple of these things that are intended to provide cover for smart con- contract exploits or the like. Um, and the distribution primarily comes from other protocols whenever a transaction is being conducted. What we're arguing, what I'm arguing here is you have a nearly trillion dollar reinsurance market. You have insurance companies, MGAs, and other reinsurers that are transacting um, uh, with, with other pools of capital. They're de facto acting as reinsurance um, via spreadsheets and Word documents. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the capital risk and capital and risk matching mechanism is pretty outdated, right? Uh, what we've now got an opportunity to do is be significantly more transparent about some of these programs. Like, yeah, like cover will see 50 million in premium into a protocol, um, that divvies up, uh, you know, that, that cash uh, amongst folks who are, who are supplying or staking capital to back that risk, right? And, and earning them a yield. But is that, you know, that's imminently extensible to every other line of business. Like, why not, you know, nuclear risk? Why not like the 10 next SpaceX flights? Why not Tesla's entire fleet or, or, uh, you know, securing the Golden Gate Bridge against, yeah. you know, earthquake uh, uh, risks? All that at some point or another is going to be processed through a, a protocol. And, and, the, and the reason that I believe that is you look at, like the, even the history of, of insurance, and this is actually not all that different from banking, there are lots and lots of these, you know, pre-Web3 things called co- third-party contributory databases, right? Like you look at LexisNexis, you look at Verisk, all these are uh, in, in a way permissioned uh, pooled resourcing that allows insurance companies and banks to find information on customers shared amongst all of them, Right. Um, all we're arguing is that there's there's a better piece of technology out there uh, that enables that, improves public transparency, uh, and also enables access to returns that are uncorrelated with the equities markets or the crypto markets. Right? Um, mm. You know, you you in effect could be a, a insurance company in a minor way, right? Uh, and, and earn a passive yield as a result. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. 
Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a world. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. At least provide the liquidity because re- re- the idea of reinsurance is that uh, I- I'm take I'm doing the assessment of risk as an individual investor contributing in this case say stable coins. No, so so the 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 closest analogy to kind of what we're up to is like a, is a decentralized Lloyd's of London, right? So Lloyd's of London is a marketplace, like a physical marketplace in London. Um, you have Lloyd's brokers who originate risk. They go work with in, uh, insurance companies and uh, other insurance companies, companies themselves that have risks they want to absolve uh, themselves of. Uh, other reinsurers, they bring it to this marketplace where, you know, historically you've had these tables where people will go around and be like, I, I like that deal. I'll take 10%. I'll take 20% until a quota share is filled out. And behind those underwriters who are, you know, domain specific and have specialized knowledge are names, right? Which today are, are um, uh, you know, f- uh, financial investors or financial institutions, um, but historically had been high net worth individuals, right? That uh, had access to returns from a asset class that nobody else had access to, right? Um, and, and so, uh, you know, if you're if you're thinking about how you democratize that and you broaden access and understanding, uh, I think DeFi is the exact exactly the right way to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in your case, say say cover let's let's peg cover in the traditional insurance bucket which it is today or it was then your means of getting the capital to fill the claims comes from investors right you're selling you're, you're offering how is it to, as a slight tangent how is it typically structured would you go out and raise a hundred million and then you're not trading that for equity in the business you're trading that for what uh dividends over time so, so you're talking about the the risk capital that backs uh, backs Correct. the, the yeah. insurance premiums. Um, so for for us, we're actually following the Lloyd's example pretty closely, right? So you, in our context, you have liquidity providers that are in, in uh, accredited retail investors and our financial institutions that go through KYC and AML. Uh, they're now earning a passive yield against an index of all the insurance programs that are on the protocol, right? And that's kind of like the the um, uh, behind the premiums that are generated, they're junior, right? So when you typically pay, uh, when you think about how insurance works, cash sits there, you sell a policy, the premiums come in the door, and usually it's the premiums that are first out the door to pay the claims, right? The regulator is going to require you to reserve against outsized losses and under certain conditions. And that's, that's kind of where the minimum, uh, you know, required capital or prescribed capital requirements come from. So, you know, it might be the case that, you know, on a $50 million deal, you need to reserve, I don't know, five or $10 million, right? And, and so uh, not unlike fractional reserve banking, you end up with a levered return. Um, right. uh, and, and that's an oversimplification in, in the context of a very large pool of capital where you diversify. But, you know, on a $50 million deal, if you end up in a, you know, you pay $45 million in claims and expenses, you only require to reserve $5 million, um, and you earn five million. That's pretty. Aggra- that's a you know. Sometimes it can turn out to be really, really good deal. In some in some instances, because it's a volatile business, it's not so much a good deal. Yeah. So in the case, say, just to paint it simply, it'd be if you have a uh, hundred members as a part of your insurance policy, each one is paying one dollar per month. You're getting a hundred dollars per month in the door. And if worst case, those members. Um, you know, all had their cars, say it was car auto, all of them crashed their cars and, and it maxed out the policy. That's, that's what's generally referred to as like the, the limits that would, I mean, that's never going to happen unless it's like an earthquake or a natural disaster. Correct. In which case there are specific, you know, uh, like there are specific treaties for that. Right. But yes, you're right. The combined probability of a hundred in, in like, simultaneous events in, in the case they're not concentrated or correlated is very, very unlikely, right? Therefore, you, you typically don't need to reserve to the limit, uh, which is like the, the 
maximum exposure, right? Uh, which is right. which is it's, where it's, the inherent le- which is where the inherent leverage comes from. And and you as a say you're running this insurance company, you would need enough to to float. You would need enough in the bank to make the uh ins- total to make the five percent or say five million dollars. Well, well, um, so, sorry. So yeah, you you would need to reserve capital as prescribed by the regulator. And typically speaking, mm-hmm. uh, when you have other insurance companies as kind of your customers, um, the the regulator may prescribe a minimum capital requirement, and generally that's it can be pretty, pretty good. Um, but if you're an insurance company or transacting with a reinsurer, you at the end of the day really do want to know they're going to be able to pay the claims. And so you're, you might require that the, the, the collateralization of the reserving, um, as a sedent is, uh, you know, as a sedent looking at a reinsurer is a, a little bit above that too. So there's additional surplus. Yeah. You know? That's interesting. All right. So now we, we take that model and apply it into crypto where let's assume the safest scenario would be you say you're the you're covering you say hey you want to insure san francisco bridge and you want people to be able to contribute to that insurance policy so i put in a thousand dollars and that would be presumably unaccessible to me because you would need you would unlike banking you can't just ask for crypto it has to be you have to have the keys to be able to get access to it if you as the company needed to pay out claims is that generally how it would work? So you have maybe ten million dollars you need to keep uh, control over in crypto. Yeah. So so if we're talking if we're talking explicitly about the most conservative case, right? What you what you would want to do is you would want to collateralize to the limit, right? Like your your the, the totality of your exposure right. is what you would want to collateralize against. So there's no inherent leverage, and whoever is buying an insurance policy from you knows you can pay out because you've already kind of got the reserving to, to, to the full limit, right? In, in practical terms, um, again, because of this, this diversification, if you've got a br- like a broad variety of programs, the likelihood that you have complete losses on all of these programs is de minimis, right? Well, t- take, take, take the bridge, take like San Francisco bridge. The, if it does go out, it's probably going to go all out. Like if a plane hits it, it's going to, it's going to need a complete repair. But, but th- look, like uh, the point of the reinsurer is like, take the risk from the, the Golden Gate Bridge and then bundle it with risk from every other bridge on earth, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, like it's not as if every bridge on earth, uh, on True. earth is going to simultaneously collapse, right? But it, it, again, in an oversimplified sense, but that's the idea. So how do you think about as, as the, company organizing this, would you put different classes? Like I could invest in bridge insurance or would you just say infrastructure? How do you draw lines around the? Yeah. So, so the, the approach that we've got, and again, it's, it's, it's purposeful for getting something up and running, right. Is to focus in on short tail risks. So stuff that doesn't necessarily have to wait a very long time for the the claims to materialize. And a good example of that would be like workers' compensation or, mm. you know, like a, a cyber liability, potentially a cyber liability policy that kind of pegs itself to a certain point in time where you might be exposed. Um, and so a lot of, you know, the short tail stuff is property and, uh, and catastrophe related, right? So you earthquake happens or it doesn't happen. Um, you know, you have a home insurance policy, you know, something either happens during the term or it doesn't. You have an auto insurance policy. Something either happens during the term or it doesn't. And so there, there isn't, there aren't these like really long tail runoff liabilities that, that are inherent in some lines of business. So if we're thinking about bringing reinsurance to DeFi, the right path is probably focus on the short tail, uh, you know, the short tail stuff, prove it out. Um, and then as capital kind of comes into the protocol and you have like the total value locked, continuing to, to climb very quickly, you can think about these long tail casualty lines of business. And, and then all of a sudden, the entire reinsurance market is kind of open up to you. And that's massive. Yeah, that's huge. Because it eventually could encompass everything. I mean, there's the idea that may, maybe we ha- we don't get insurance through a centralized pot of money. In, instead, everyone, computationally, everyone holds some risk reward uh, exchange there. I mean, in that way, we're kind of like a, a giant interwebbed insurance g- collective. Right? Yeah, look, like these these economic activities. The fact that you have Golden Gate Bridge, like somebody is taking the risk that that thing won't be standing, you know, in like I don't know, a hundred years, whatever it is. Um, uh, and you're right. If it if it's on a it's on a ledger, if the results are observable and readily queryable, 
um, you know, you have, you have sophisticated actors on the protocol that can build the models, um, you know, and not just build the models, but put up the capital, put their money where their mouth is. Um, uh, I think you end up with a better outcome, right? Like you're, you're going to end up reducing the overall cost of insurance, right? Like it, 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 if you increase the overall transparency and, and, and access in general. Yeah. And, and wouldn't it, wouldn't it eventually boil down to just who has access to the most valuable data? Again, it'd be, you know, in the case of a bridge, it's different, but say it's, um, you know, uh, car insurance or something. If somehow that data has to pass into presumably, like ideally you pass it into the network and everyone has equal access to data. But in reality, I imagine that wouldn't be the case. Yeah. I mean, we don't live in a world with perfect information, right? Um, and so a good example of that would be, hey, like there, there's a huge demand for cyber liability policies now, right? Like m- most businesses are, are, are picking these things up. They kind of, they kind of sense, but from a, a competency perspective, one, the data, the data is pretty sparse, right? Like the number of actual incurred events, um, to be able to, you know, project off of is not massive. It's, it's certainly not anywhere near the realm of what you would see with auto insurance, right? Auto insurance is very low severity, but high frequency claims that resolve quickly into a predictable loss ratio. Difficult to do that for, for, you know, cyber liability or something like that. Mm. It could be a Norwegian, um, you know, oil company that's trying to insure your, your offshore oil, oil rigs. Like how many of those are there, right? There are a lot, but, uh, you know, <laughs> like how much data do you really have? Uh, and so sometimes it just comes down to like, Hey, uh, it's, it's not purely about the data. There's certainly professional judgment and, and having a point of view and perspective and foresight matters as an underwriter. Right. Uh, and that, that's yeah. kind of how you carve out, you know, your reputation as one. Yeah. Um, all right. So when you think of the business that you're establishing in the Cayman Islands, that's going to facilitate this mechanism that allows in- individuals to contribute value, we'll call it stable coins, and, and take on the risk of some asset. You, you're dividing up the, the pies of risks. So you're saying this is going to be bridges or this is going to be all infrastructure. Yeah. So, right. so I, I'm still kind of noodling on how a DAO could, uh, could be used to, you know, prescribe what lines of business, um, you know, this thing writes. DeFi protocol is being, gov- is going to be governed broadly. And in an ideal world, there are other insurance sophisticated actors and sophisticated financial actors that are thinking about, um, you know, this uh, because they have an economic incentive to do so. Um, it, you know, I just want, I just want to, uh, hark back to like the, the comment that you made about like kind of the pecking order, you know, those premiums, there was the, the liquidity that's coming in from, you know, crypto folks or other folks who are engaging the final piece in the, the interesting question, which is like a, I, I think is like an evolution, a somewhat of a slight evolution in, in how protocols are being developed. Um, we're, we're stealing the idea from Lloyd's of London. Lloyd's of London has a central fund, right? Uh, the central fund is the ultimate capital backstop to the entire marketplace. So you have, you know, folks who, who are, um, you know, proprietors of their own. They've got their own syndicates. So they're their own underwriters. They've got capital supply. But if everything goes haywire, Lloyd's is still on the hook, right? Um, and actually, that's really, really important. It's, it's the it's the reason that Lloyd's still exists, you know, 300 years later. It's because it allows for folks who don't necessarily have a 500 million, billion, $2 billion balance sheet to start to write business that they otherwise would never have been able to write because they can point to Lloyd's and say, hey, we're going to bootstrap off of a financial rating that this network has. Um and that that is going to be the the port of last call, right? For for anything that we ultimately do, which is why I think um, you know a reinsurance protocol needs to get big quick, right? It, so it needs to get big quickly, uh, and it needs to have a significant enough amount of not just total value locked, but protocol capital itself that uh, that enables this kind of stuff to happen over time, right? And and so you know, there's some stuff that we're inventing. And then there's some stuff that is really just like an evolutionary process over hundreds of years that's led that's led to a configuration that's stable and and we should learn from right, um, yeah. and it ends up being a confluence of these things. Yeah, it sounds like I, I agree with that, and I think that's 
that has to be the right approach to it. Uh, learn from what it currently exists. I also think the concept of merging together centralized and decentralized is going to be important. If it becomes completely, the completely decentralized, it's of course at the vulnerability of voting and, and there's no, there's no ground to, to hold things in place, so to speak. Yeah. I, I could see this also evolving to where it's a, it's, it's a marketplace in the sense, and maybe this is what you're referring to and I didn't quite understand it, but that people can come looking for insurance packages. So the people who own, you know, 150 boats in some business, they want insurance. They're coming here. They're, they're, they're offering all the value or all the information about what they want insurance on. And then there's like a, a bidding system where the market kind of evaluates this. And then there's a uh, evaluation period. And then if it hits a certain level of premium or a certain level of investor contribution, then the deal is created and otherwise it wouldn't be. So if I come, if I say I own a hundred boats, I'm part of this company that owns boats. We, we rent them out. We want insurance. I come on here. I, I submit a bunch of information. There's a 30-day evaluation period where people in the market can evaluate and they either contribute to the policy or they don't. And if they don't, then the the, the deal dies. There's no yeah. insurance. So it's, it's actually kind of I, like a Kickstarter. Yeah, it's, it's not that different from what happens at Lloyd's today, right? Like you have Lloyd's agents in North America that will look at your 150 boats or 100 boats and be like, okay, well, I can't find a standard market or an insurance company in the United States that'll take that. But Lloyd's will probably take it, so like, they they package it up uh, as a as a broker. They bring it to the marketplace. There's probably you know I think they have hundreds of syndicates. Syndicates are again underwriters, right? They're their specialization, um, and uh, they'll use Lloyd's paper. The the they have an insurance set of insurance licenses that you can use to issue the policy. But then the capital and the underwriting is happening in the marketplace, right? So it's not all that different. The different, the the major difference is within this like frictioned process, you lose forty cents on every dollar uh, to pure expenses, right? So you're you're looking at combined ratios. Combined ratios are like the pure losses plus the expenses um, uh, incurred to originate that business, underwrite that business, service that business, being north of a hundred percent. And you know, if you if you ask me candidly, I I think, hey that <laughs> there's probably pretty significant room for, you know, smart contracts to, uh, to help shave away qu- quite a bit of, of that overhead. Um, you know, simple things like APIs from insurance companies, with policyholder details that could propagate all the way to the underwriter don't exist, right? Like what you would otherwise see is a spreadsheet with that has significant, and every time it changes hands, the fidelity of information related to the risk you originally took diminishes, right? And we see this all the time. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you're 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 looking at you know very sparse data, right? Um, and and you're dealing with very very large dollars. At, at some point or another, that's going to change. Why is it that way? It's just just it's just including it, all. Yeah, it's it's just what it is, right? Like I think. Um, no one, no one during the natural evolution of this market thought that, hey, like having consistent verifiable data at every step of the way from the origination of the policy to the ultimate risk bearer of the policy was a useful thing uh, or even a technically feasible thing, which it is now. Got it. So do you see the uh, the underwriters, which it sounds like the power of the, the market at the Lloyds of London is that they have a wide, they have an eclectic mix of underwriters with varying specialties. So you take it there and you'll find somebody that will insure boats. And those guys have a unique skill set that can easily be applicable to the decentralized approach, right? Their real value doesn't matter whether it's on-chain or off-chain. It's assessing a business and then they just happen to fund it through a stable coin as opposed and, to... And all of the machinery around it is intended to reduce costs and, and reduce friction to get them to the mm. to, to the assessment of that risk, right? Like that's... And, and, and to be fair, like Lloyd's of London and like a bunch of other reinsurers have tried these things, like B3I. The, the problem is you get 60 guys or, and women and, and folks in a room to discuss concepts like a blockchain ledger it doesn't get anywhere very, very quickly, right? Like, it, it, like, it, <laughs> yeah. it, like the the educational, bur- like the the burden is very high, and then um, 
a lot of these folks are going to think of this as a cost center, right? And at least initially, as opposed to a profit center, so they're less inclined to they're less inclined to engage. Um, and ultimately, you know, just hire somebody else that has the requisite yeah. knowledge to go and do the thing, right? Yeah. yeah. How do you balance it? So you got this business cover is I don't know hundreds of millions, billions in valuation. Like it's a big project at this point. Yeah. No. Look, I I think um, they're they're symbiotic, right? Like we. I, I want um, uh, RE, which is a, the, the reinsurance marketplace, to be able to support multiple lines of business for cover. Like, I, I think that's important. What's it called? Uh, so RE? RE, yeah. RE. RE. RE, yeah. So would, it, yeah. would it be a separate domain? Uh, probably. Yeah. <laughs> is RE.com is available? Uh, I think Zillow owns it, actually. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It would be nice, though. The domain. Yeah. Yeah, buy another fancy domain. I think I think re would be harder to get than cover, honestly. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, does it make sense to pivot the whole business in this direction, or how do you think of the the model for profitability with with? Yeah, so so cover cover itself, you can think of as a syndicate, right? Like we're underwriters Mm -hmm. at at the end of the day. Um, We're building we're building machinery for us to be able to do this. It's easily generalizable. That's kind of uh, you know, where my head is at with respect to this. It's supportive of the cover business. Um, uh, but it is different. There's no question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. So what's your timeline? We're recording this on March 22nd. Yeah. Yeah. Summer. I mean, look, I, some, some stuff's already on testnet. So we will, um, yeah, we'll get, we'll edge closer. I'm thinking probably within the quarter. Yeah. Cool, man. This has been, I swear, the fastest conversation that I've had. Uh, I absolutely love everything you're working on. We had a, a wide uh, ranging conversation from morality of insurance to your background to uh, obviously blockchain and applicability there. Anything else you wanted to throw out there? Um, places you write or tweet or obviously the domain is incredibly easy to find. I'm sure covers all over the web. Yeah, look, if you found... Um especially like insurance and reinsurance folks that are, that are listening to this or folks that are good at quantifying risk. Um, if, if anything that I talked about today is of interest to you, just reach out to me. It's uh, Karn at cover.com. Um, or you can find me at, on you know LinkedIn or Twitter, just uh, at Karn Soroya. Cool, man. Well, congrats on all the progress and uh, keep crushing it. I love what you're working on. Hope to have you back on someday and we'll talk about it when you guys are ripping through the uh, decentralized protocol. For sure. For sure. Thanks for the time. Take care, man. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Have you ever felt that your life has no meaning? Do you wake up in the morning dreading the day ahead? Do you feel lost? I'm Tanner Campbell, host of the podcast Practical Stoicism. Every Saturday morning, I explore the ancient texts of Stoicism and derive from them practical takeaways that anyone can implement to live a more contented and fulfilling life. Search your podcast listening app of choice for Practical Stoicism and join me each week to explore Stoicism practically and discover how it can help you live better.